Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word now, Father, help us to understand what we need to understand. Help us to love and cherish what we must love and cherish. Help us to apply it where necessary and effective in our lives. Father, for your glory and our good, in Jesus' name, amen. Today, we get to talk about the discipline of the Lord. The discipline of the Lord uh, is a a rather broad topic with many nuances, caveats, applications, and so on. But let me begin with this question. What do you think of when you think of the discipline of the Lord, what do you think of? What immediately comes to your mind? I'm willing to bet, quite a bit, that it has something to do with this. When I do something wrong, the Lord disciplines me. When I sin, the Lord disciplines me. But what if I told you that God's discipline comes even in the midst of faithfulness? And indeed, maybe even more often in the midst of faithfulness. What if our understanding of discipline is woefully narrow or unfortunately shallow? Well, I get to see God's discipline when I sin, period. But what if discipline includes more than just when I have sinned, then God acts in a form of discipline. What if discipline happens more broadly than that? I believe that certainly when we sin as God's people, that he does discipline us. But what I want to push you on this morning is that is certainly not the only place that he disciplines us or the only time that he disciplines us. And that's not the discipline application that he's talking about in this passage. This passage is not primarily talking about, I've sinned and therefore God disciplines me. Instead, this passage is speaking more in the, in the realm of faithfulness and yet still having God's discipline in the midst of that faithfulness. Now here's part of practically why this is important. If you and I, as God's people, are largely motivated first out of God's love for us, then we respond in love to him, then recognizing when God is loving us is really crucial for our frames. And if you do not see the discipline of the Lord in the midst of faithfulness, let me back up, let me say it differently. If you do not see the love of the Lord displayed to you through discipline in the midst of faithfulness, 
then you will miss a huge portion of the love of God and its work in your life each and every day. And then wonder why we doubt so much how much he loves us. Let me give you this other thought here at the beginning before we jump in more deeply here. Why does evil seem to go undisciplined or untouched? Why does evil seem to prosper? Bryn sent this message to me. Actually, I didn't ask her for permission to say her name, but sent this quote from Thomas Watson. I'm just going to read one portion of it. That God punishes most when he does not punish. If you have a biblical understanding of discipline, then you would understand that God is letting them go unpunished, which is ultimately an act of a lacking of his love for them. But I thought God loved everybody. Well, in a sense he does, but not as sons. So do not envy the, prosper, the prosperity of evil. Do not envy what they have gained. Do not envy an ounce of it. It is not God's love for them that enables this. God does not love them as sons, and so he lets them have what they want. All right, so this morning, we're going to build at least some semblance of a theology of discipline now, I'm going to be all over this passage, so if you're hoping for like verse 1, 2, and here's my thoughts, verse 2, 3, it's going to be a little more scattershot than that, okay? Just admittedly so. He's, I feel like that's how he presents it anyways, because he kind of talks about this here and here and here, so just be aware of that, and, and there might be something I say that's from the passage that I forget to tell you where it's at in the passage, so I apologize for that in advance. We're going to be all over the place, so I would encourage you, please have your Bible, please have the passage open, be looking. The first thing I want to answer is, what is discipline? What is discipline? I would call it corrective punishment. Corrective punishment. Hebrews 12, 11 says this. See, I told you we're going to jump all over the place. We're all the way at verse 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Now, we're going to come back to that because that means a whole lot more than just the point I'm making here. But at the very least, we see that it uh, produces something better. It's corrective. God's this discipline directs our lives to produce more righteousness. It's corrective. The verb or the word here literally means uh, of this of this uh, disciplining um, punishment. It literally means scourging or whipping as an intense form of punishment. You we say in our nice sanitized Christianity, but God doesn't cause pain, and we don't want to attribute it in any way to the Lord, but it's 
punishment from the sovereign hand of God. It's corrective, it's motivated out of love, but nevertheless it is painful and it is under his sovereignty, his plan, his purpose. Now it's not punitive, I'm sorry for the vocabulary lesson here, but it's not punitive meaning, it's simply payment for unrighteousness. So an example of this, you stole bread, now you have to pay the bread back. Like you have to pay back for the bread, that's punitive. Or for example, you took a life, now you get the death penalty. That is punitive justice. That is the payment due for the transgression. Now, certainly, the Lord does exercise punitive justice in our lives. We should exercise punitive justice. Like your kids, if they stole something from their sibling, they must pay that back. That's punitive justice. But when you love your child, and the Lord, as he loves us, does not stop at punitive justice or punitive punishment. It also moves towards corrective it, to produce further righteousness in us. But this is pain meant to correct wrongdoing toward right doing. Right? So that's, that's kind of my summary statement. It's, it's sovereignly orchestrated pain to correct wrongdoing toward right doing or sin towards righteousness. Which leads me to this next point, or sub-point. Don't confuse discipline with damning wrath. Do not confuse the Lord's discipline with the Lord's damning wrath. Romans 8.1 says this, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's really, yes, amen. It is really easy for some of us to interpret, hear me, and I think many of us do this, for some of us to interpret even the slightest bit of pain to our lives as God's wrath towards us. Hear me clearly, because I'm not going to say this a thousand times, even for your sake. I'll even say it slowly for the kids and loudly for those in the back. God's damning wrath is reserved for all those who reject Christ, period. And Jesus took all of God's damning wrath for those who are in Christ, period. So as we talk about discipline, as you live in the midst of the Lord's discipline, do not confuse that with God's damning wrath. There is none left for you to drink, for Jesus drank it all. Next point, next sub-point. Discipline, what is discipline? Don't confuse it with damning wrath. Next, it is training it is training. It's corrective punishment. It is training. Hebrews 12, 11, again. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been, what? Trained by it. It's active. 
It's a shaping of desires and actions. It's a curtailing of evil desires. It is a, uh, a moving. It is a shaping. It is a, hey, these are the right desires and actions. These are the wrong desires and actions. And it is meant to manipulate it into the right path. Why do you smack a kid's hand who put his fork into the electrical socket, right? Because you want to curtail his behavior. You want to make sure he feels enough pain that he learns his lesson now so that he does not foolishly run into the road when a car's coming and die. It's training. It's a shaping of desires. It's the process of education and arranging demanding experiences designed to spur development. Someone said this. It's designed to apply force against the muscle of our faith to push us forward toward our spiritual potential. Back to the idea of raising a child. You instruct them in God's standard and His way. And if you're going to train them and discipline them, then you will create situations that put your child's faith to the test. Will they trust God or not? Largely displayed in whether or not they will trust mom and dad or not. Will they respond in righteousness or not? I'm going to come back to this point in a bit. But I see way too many of us parents that never expose our kids to opportunities that will test them. Let them fall. Let them have to deal with their emotions. Let them get sick. See how they respond, and then train them accordingly. The Lord does this with us. Why would we not do this with our own children? It's training. It's intentional, sovereign working of God, orchestrating circumstances to test and train our souls. Or here, as someone said, the muscle of our faith. It's training. What is discipline next? Discipline is ultimately rooted in our Heavenly Father. Meaning it's found, it's defined, it's enacted, it's began. It finds its origination in our Heavenly Father. This is not the world's ideas. This is not the best book's ideas. This is God's idea. Hebrews 13, 6, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Again, this verse, like the others, say lots of things. But at the very least, it says that the Lord does this. The Lord does discipline his sons and those whom he loves and chastises them. It's the Lord's duty. It's something he is bound to. He has bound himself to. If God is love and it is loving to discipline, then God will discipline his children. 
He is bound to that by his very character and nature. Listen, I don't know if you realize this, but that was a moment to say amen, because that's a good thing for us, that God is bound to discipline by his very character, intrinsic to who he is, to discipline his children. Thank you from the back. Which means when we lovingly discipline another inside the church, we discipline our kids, we are living consistent with our Heavenly Father's character. Which also means when we or a church is unwilling to discipline, we are living contrary or rebelliously toward the very character of our Heavenly Father. Uh, This is not meant to be a sermon on parenting, for the record. But parents, (laughs) when you forego disciplining your kids, you are modeling something that is inconsistent with the character of God. You're teaching them something that's not true of who God is. And you are denying your child love. which means they'll have a skewed view of God's love for the rest of their lives. And that's, listen, listen, parents, if you've messed up there, repent now and go live faithfully, okay? God can heal all sorts of things. He can make good in our terrible situations. Anyways, I'm gonna move on because I told you this was not a, uh, well, that's funny. My next point is this, is discipline is a duty of all parents. So there you go. I should know what my notes have coming next. Discipline is a duty of all parents. Hebrews 13, 9. He says, besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? One preacher said this. Listen to these words, mom and dad. Parents who try to win their children's affection by treating them as peers and friends, giving them what they want, and neglecting discipline, not only fail in their duty, but gain contempt instead of admiration. If discipline causes us to respect our earthly fathers, then the same should be true with regard to our heavenly Father. So listen, mom and dad. If you do not discipline your children, you will gain scorn from them, ultimately, instead of admiration. And they will increasingly scorn the discipline of the Lord. This is particularly tempting for parents. I just want them to be my friend. I just want them to like me. And then neglect discipline. Do not neglect discipline. Next point. It's a matter of life or death. Discipline is a matter of life or death. The Lord's discipline 
And we're going to talk about what that looks practically, but just briefly so that you start to connect these dots. God's discipline is largely enacted on the horizontal plane. God's discipline is largely enacted from one believer to the next, from a parent to a child, from elders to a church. And we should see all of those moments, whether you're parenting a two-year-old or it's the church exercising excommunication and everything in between. If you do not see it as a matter of life or death, you will not regard it as you should. Hebrews 12, 9. Remember that we just read, besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? We joke, I, I joke at least often about our jobs as parents for the first five years is just simply keeping your child alive. That is very true. I've, we've had more medical bills in the past eight months of living on a farm than we've ever had in our lives, including my own. We, every moment of discipline is a matter of life or death. And if we shall subject ourselves to the Father of spirits and his discipline, we shall live. If we are not subject to the Father and his discipline, then we shall die. Just in case you didn't realize the inverse of that was true as well. Next, what is discipline? Discipline is for our good. Discipline is for our good. I'm not going to spend a ton of time here, but on our own, we become comfortable with the world and even with sin. We all have that. We all have places where we've become comfortable with the world and with sin. J.I. Packer says this, this is the ultimate reason from our standpoint why God fills our lives with troubles and perplexities of one sort or another. It is to ensure that we shall learn to hold him fast. God wants us to feel that our way through life is rough and perplexing so that we may learn thankfully to lean on him. Therefore, he takes steps to drive us out of self-confidence to trust in himself. Nothing gets our attention like pain. God designed it that way. It's a good thing. It's for our good. We shall live, he says. That, if that's not for our good, I don't know what is. He says, we shall bear righteousness. That's our good. He says, we shall share in his holiness. That's good. Listen, those are all things to enjoy. A household full of people who are being disciplined by the Lord brings about life and righteousness and holiness. That's a good place to be. Well-disciplined kids is a place where life is and righteousness and holiness. That's a good place to be. So when you give, we've said this frequently around here in many different ways, a spouse, one of the best things you can give to your spouse is your own holiness. 
Why? Because that's for their good too. And it's a good place to be. What is discipline? It is for our good. It is a good thing. Next, and this kind of recalls back to where I began today. What is discipline? It is both pain from your sin and the pain from the sin of others. God's discipline is seen both in the pain from your sin, which is how I think we tend to limit God's discipline to, but it's also seen in the pain that you experience from the sin of others. You kind of think of discipline as kind of like a, uh, a roof. There's kind of two pillars underneath this roof. There's the, the pain and this orchestration that the Lord does that's, that's through our, because of our own sin, and the Lord disciplines us there. But we're on this other pillar, which is what I think Hebrews 12 is predominantly about, and that is the pain we experience at the cause of a sinner, another sinner's life. Again, we tend to think of discipline, God disciplines me only when I sin. And then when we think of sin, that's of pain that is caused in us by the sin of someone else, we tend to only think of it as a moment that we ask God to help us endure. God, just help me get through this. Help me to make it through to the other side. And what I'm saying is there's more to that pillar than just making it through to the other side. In fact, you should see the discipline of the Lord in those painful moments, even when it's at the hand of another sinner. We need to understand that even when my pain is primarily stimulated or caused, if you will, because of someone else's sin, the discipline of the Lord is still at work there. Now, I I want to give this caveat here at this moment before I walk a little further through this. What I'm not saying is that in that moment, let's say someone's sin is that they're, let's say they're slandering you. Like, let's say they're attacking you. They're saying, you have sinned this way. I'm not saying that you should take that as God's discipline and that their accusation is legitimately true. It's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that the Lord is disciplining you in the midst of that, and it may be completely unrelated to the sin of that other person. And we'll get to what that is in a few moments. To, to, just so that you, I don't get too far from this point and you miss the connection, I'll go ahead and say this. We all have faith that is still impure, so even when you're maybe being attacked, you know, maybe for example, for being a bully. How about that? You're being attacked for being a bully. You may, you may be the nicest guy in the world, but God's going to use that moment of that false attack by that slanderer to still discipline you. Why? Because even though you may be the nicest guy in the world, you still have a faith that needs purified. And God's going to utilize and steward that moment that he orchestrated to purify your faith. I'm going to connect that dot as we, as we roll, but I didn't want to get too far away from that point. 
whether caused by your own sin or another's sin. What I'm saying is when you suffer for righteousness' sake, it is also for the sake of God's discipline. So again, we tend to think you're just suffering. I'm wanting to introduce to you that you should also see, even in that suffering, as the discipline of the Lord. When someone sins and causes you suffering, there is still active discipline of the Lord happening in that moment. Now again, hopefully you can see this. That, particularly for we, as we proceed as Christians in an increasingly hostile world, as that hostility increases, if you fail to see the discipline of the Lord for your own soul, and therefore his love in the midst of that, you're going to miss the love of God as we move forward, at least a large display of it. So you say, all right. Pastor Matt, how'd you get there? Show me in the text. Here we go. Very quickly, Hebrews eleven thirty five. So just a few verses before this, he talks about some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life, right? So they are uh, suffering as they faithfully follow Jesus. Then in twelve three, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So this is Jesus who's enduring. He's living faithfully, but he's experiencing hostility. Remember those verses about uh, they plundered your property, but you basically responded with joy? So you have this idea of suffering at the hand, even in the midst of persevering, faithfulness. So it's 12.3, Jesus endured, he persevered, even in the midst of hostility. Then verse 4, so just the very next verse, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. So that's the first verse that we read today, right? You have not In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. What does that mean? Here's what he means. You have been persecuted and you have suffered so much. Lost your property, maybe been put in jail, likely physically hurt, all of this pain. But you have not endured their sin to the point of dying. He's not talking about resisting your own sin here. Talk about resisting the sin of others. And you've not yet done that to the point of death. Jesus did that to the point of death. He's saying you've not done it. In this context, sure, certainly there have been Christians all over the place that have resisted all the way to the point of death. But not these people yet. So he's saying they've not resisted. You've not resisted yet to this point. But What's the point? They're being sinned against right here in this immediate passage. Verse 4, and your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of death. Then verse 5, right after that, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? Right? God disciplines those whom he loves. So, so don't, like, So the author of Hebrews is trying to encourage them to remain steadfast. Says to them, 
you've not yet resisted their sin to the point of losing your own life. Now be encouraged. Why? Because God disciplines those whom he loves. Because God chastises his son. And it doesn't stop there. Verse 7. For my studies, the CSV seems to render this better than the NASB or the ESV. Especially, I think, particularly because of the context. Should read, endure suffering as discipline. God is dealing with you as sons. What's the suffering? It's the suffering at the hand of another sinner. And what's he saying? Endure it as discipline. Again, that doesn't mean that the sinner and what they're throwing at you, whatever it is, that it's legitimate whatsoever. But see the circumstance and the pain from it as God's discipline. How does that change in the midst of suffering? How does that change your perspective? I think the CSV captures the context and the thread of the argument. You need to endure suffering at the hands of hostile sinners and see it as discipline. I'm going to name something I, that I think we've all seen, and then I'm going to say why I think it's the case. If you've read Christian biographies, particularly of of people like uh, missionaries and faithful pastors, those who suffer the most at the hands of hostile sinners tend to be the strongest Christians. They tend to have the strongest faith. Why? Because they just happen to endure a whole bunch of suffering? Why? Because they just have more life experience than you? Why? Because they were just went through some tough times and they just succeeded to the other side? Why? Because of the loving discipline of the Lord. That's why. He gets all of the credit, but that's why. It wasn't because they just went through hard times. It was the loving discipline of the Lord. And what happens with pure faith? Greater faithfulness. What happens with greater faithfulness? More boldness. What happens with greater boldness? Greater hostility. What happens with greater hostility? More discipline. What happens with discipline? Comes greater faithfulness. What happens with greater faithfulness? Comes more boldness. What happens with more boldness? Comes more hostility. Rinse and repeat. Over and over and over again. The loving discipline of the Lord, purifying his bride for the day that his son takes her home. Now I know, I think if, if I'm estimating here correctly, I think this makes some of us a little uncomfortable. Like why? I think part of maybe because we bought partially into the victimhood ideology of our day. If I can claim victim, 
then I'm off the hook for anything morally. That's really at the root of victim ideology. I mean, there's more I could say there, but. And all that we want when we feel like victims is comfort and cheer. But the Lord can see all of the situation for what it is. And what he sees is a faith that can and must grow. I think we need to understand, again, discipline to include both the times we sin and the times that others sin against us. Because if we don't, then we will do things here. We will fail to see the love of the Father in the midst of suffering at the hands of sinners. Do you hear me? You will fail to see the love of the Father exercised through discipline in the midst of of suffering at the hands of sinners and what a terrible thing it would be for us to miss, to not see the love of the Father, especially in the midst of a difficult trial. To be in the midst of suffering for righteousness' sake and be unable to see the love of the Father. I think that's part of the reason why Jesus says, when you're suffering for righteousness' sake, go go celebrate. Go around the corner and dance a jig. Why? Because as sons, you can see the discipline of the Lord. And why would you not go celebrate the display of God's love for you? Two, if we do not see it this way, we will fail to see where our faith needs purified in the midst of the storm, in the midst of the suffering. You'll miss it. You'll think it's just a, a thing to survive, just something to get through. You will not steward the moment for all that it's worth. You want to know why your elders were in part able to endure such hostility a couple years ago? Because they knew God was refining their own faith even in ways unrelated to what was being said. And they could see the love of the Father in the midst of pagan hatred. What is discipline? Next, what to do with it? That was a long time for uh, point one. So I'm making up for all those minutes that I did not take a few weeks ago. There you go. What to do with it? What do you do with discipline? How do you respond to discipline? How do you receive it? You have to judge suffering with the eyes of faith. You have to judge suffering with the eyes of faith. Spurgeon, I'm going to read a lengthier quote from him. He says this, Suppose that I am under a great tribulation today. Let it be a bodily affliction, the head is aching, the heart is palpitating, the mind is agitated and distracted. He says, am I in a fit state to judge the quality of affliction with a distracted and addled brain? (laughs) With the scales of the judgment lifted from their proper place, how can I sit and form a just idea of the wisdom of God in his dispensations? All that flesh and blood can discover of the quality of affliction is but its outward superficial appearance, 
We are not able by the eye of reason to discover the real virtue of sanctified tribulation. This discernment is the privilege of faith. What's he saying? You cannot judge your own affliction with carnal or fleshly reasoning. You have to judge suffering with the eyes of faith. You must see it through the lens of a passage like we're reading today. You must see it with the eyes of faith. What do I mean by that? Can you see like the discipline of the Lord in the midst of that suffering? Like, is, that, is it tangible? Usually not. You must see it and believe that that's what he's doing. That's faith. You must see it with the eyes of faith. And again, I don't want to be an alarmist, but, but man, as, as our culture is picking up speed in the direction it's headed, if you will secure this faith in, faith in these ways, it will aid your faithfulness in the days ahead. It will aid your joy, and it will aid your display of the glory of God. So you have to judge suffering with the eyes of faith. Again, what to do with discipline? You should regard it heavily. That's what he says, right? Do not regard it lightly. So regard it heavily. Regard it with a weightiness, with a gravitas. I wonder how much discipline in our own lives we simply let walk on by and we don't steward that moment faithfully because we do not regard it heavily. I don't mean a, like, I'm going to be careful here, like, this doesn't mean that you respond to the moment, like, with a uh, depressed, downtrodden demeanor. It doesn't mean, oh, man, this is, this is heavy, you know, and this kind of sucks, and, no, 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 but a hopeful, heavy regarding. Why can you be hopeful? Because of Lots of the other things I just said, because it's good. It's God's sovereignty. It's going to work righteousness because of the eyes of faith. You can see those things. It's a hopeful regarding, considering how God is lovingly pressing you on in sanctification. So regard it heavily. Next, don't be stoic. Be at peace. So I'm not, we're not, I'm not calling you to emotionless. I'm not calling you to emotionalism either, but to be at peace. Don't just grimly accept it as unavoidable. Does that make sense? Don't just accept it like gritting your teeth. Well, it is what it is. Well, I'm here, ain't I? Or I'm just living the dream. That's how it would look for most of us, right? What, What are you doing? When, when, when the Lord has brought pain into your life and you say, well, man, I'm just living the dream. What are you saying? You're saying, I don't appreciate the discipline of the Lord. And what are you saying there? I don't think God loves me. 
Instead, Hebrews 12.11 says, this discipline of the Lord that comes from his love, later it yields the peaceful fruit. As I was, I was told on the phone this past week that in recent years of suffering for righteousness' sake, that mine and the other elders' example has been one of steadfastness and confidence. Do you want to know why? Because we were at peace. You know why we were at peace? Because instead of being concerned with pagans, we were concerned with the Lord's discipline in our own lives. For example, if I could be self-deprecating for a moment. Many of you have heard me say this in private. I'll say this publicly. Early on in 2021, when I was being attacked, my eyes were not focused on the stupidity. My eyes were focused on becoming a better husband and father. The Lord had taken the, the distance. So what was happening was the, the hostility brought pain in my life, legitimate pain. The Lord used that to discipline me in something completely unrelated to what was being said out here. And because of that, the Lord used that to grow me in ways that have been astronomical and a blessing to me and to my family. The Lord disciplined me during that. Some of you heard me say in the midst of that, listen, I can, I can write my own letter of how I have failed. And I said that many times. Why? Because I knew the ways the Lord was disciplining me. It just wasn't related to anything out here that was being said. What was a gift to me during that time was the Lord had encompassed and overwhelmed me in such a good way with the ways that he was disciplining me that it helped me in many ways ignore or view rightly the things that was happening out there. Listen, a person who understands God's discipline rightly will walk peacefully through the storm. A person who understands God's discipline rightly will walk peacefully through the storm. It yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So don't be stoic. Be at peace. That's a gift in the midst of such a chaotic world to laughingly, confidently walk with peace. That's, you can't buy that. Only the Lord can give that to you. Next, don't have self-pity and anger. I'm saying that one because that's just very common response when it comes to suffering. Self-pity and or anger. What did I do to deserve this? I don't want this. One preacher said this, some believers manifest abounding joy when God is blessing them with worldly goodness but quickly resort to sullen resentment when God is blessing them with trials. 
Now here's the reality. None of you are likely to say this, God, you are wrong. This shouldn't be happening to me. However, whenever pain, suffering has hit our face or head, how many of us are wandering around with a low-grade fever, a posture of discontent, a rumbling of frustration, a mumbling under our breath, complaining? I mean, the list goes on. Here's what you're doing. You are rejecting God's discipline as an act of love towards you as his child. Ouch or amen works fine too. (laughs) You are rejecting God's discipline as an act of love towards you as his child. But imagine the flip side of this. By faith, you see it as his love and discipline for you. What joy and freedom and peace. What a gift. And you didn't have to change a single thing around you. Next, don't be weary. I really am going to make up this time. Don't be weary. Let's move quicker. Weary comes when you forget the motive of discipline and the purpose of discipline. The purpose being to bring forth the fruit of righteousness the motive being God's love for you. He says, don't grow weary. How do we not grow weary? We remember the other things he said and believe them by faith. Next, don't use it as an excuse for unfaithfulness. If faithfulness is, is like part of this formula where the, then hostility comes and then God disciplines you, which brings about pure faithfulness. The last thing you want to do in the midst of suffering and the pain is to respond with unfaithfulness. It doesn't make any sense at all to take God's discipline and run sour with it. But if you see it as loving, you won't do that. To see it as his goodness towards you You won't do that. There are many ways that we respond to the pain that comes into our lives with, uh, and use it as an excuse for unfaithfulness. Maybe you can explore that in your home groups this week. Next, endure it. Endure it. Endure the suffering. Endure the discipline. How did we define that last week? Have the capacity to continue. Don't run from it. I've seen this consistently over the years pastorally. As the pastors like, are starting to move in and we're getting a little closer to the issues, boom, people bolt. I've seen it more times than I can count. As other people, not just the elders, press in. People start feeling that squeeze. James 1.12 says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Amen? Amen. Endure it. Next, receive it as love. I've said this already. 
He says to endure, God is treating you as sons. You know, something that would bring weight to your mind, to see it as love, is, is if you would connect it to it's a matter of life or death. He is literally saving you as he disciplines you. He's saving you. He is bringing you into eternal life. If that doesn't inspire love in you, then I don't know how to help. The Lord is loving you as he disciplines you. And that act is saving you, preparing you for eternity. Receive it as love. Richard Sibb says this, If God brings us into the trial, he will be with us in the trial, and at length bring us out more refined. We shall lose nothing but dross. Spurgeon, while you feel the weight of God's hand upon you, never forget that it is your Father's hand. Next, count it all joy. Count it all joy. James 1, 2-3, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Someone said this, God is training his children for the enjoyment of a life in its fullest sense, and we ought therefore to respond eagerly, perceiving the dangers of disobedience and the benefits of God's disciplining care. Did you, did you, don't miss that. He's training his children for the enjoyment of life in its fullest sense. Next, grow from it. Grow from it. 1 Peter 1, 6-7, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Why? And again, what kind of trial? But why? Why? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Any dross in your faith, any impurities in your faith is a sin against a holy, all-faith-deserving God. And so, when we are sinned against and the pain of that moment surrounds us, the sin of impure faith still abides in us. And the Lord is so kind to use that moron's sin to give you a more perfect and beautiful faith through which to enjoy the Lord's goodness for all of eternity. Next, what's it look like practically? I told you we could be here for a minute. What's it look like practically? Practically, it looks like the orchestration of events. The Lord sovereignly orchestrating events. He orchestrates events that create pressure upon the muscle of the soul so that it's cleansed and tested. What do I mean by that? God literally controls the events of our lives 
good and bad, in order to test and bring about the genuineness of our faith. Very practically, even that stoplight that won't change, or that guy that flips you off. The orchestration of events. If you don't know what flipping off means, talk to your parents, okay? I told you we were going to talk about parenting today. <laughs> All right, there's your seventh inning stretch. Here we go. God's discipline comes through God's delegated authority. Don't miss this. God's discipline comes largely through delegated authority, His delegated authority. I think we tend to think God's discipline kind of comes out of the air. Oh, it must be God's discipline. And then when God's actually disciplining us, we just get mad and and turn from it. What do I mean? I just give some practical examples. The government. When the government is in its lane, punishing evil and rewarding good, you should see it as the loving hand of discipline from God. So yes, when you are speeding and you get pulled over and get a ticket, you should see it as the loving, disciplining hand of God. Elders and the church. Church discipline would be a fine example here, but not the only example. I know Hebrews 13, 17, that verse gets worn out these days for many reasons. But elders have an obligation to keep the sheep from straying. Verse 17, obey your leaders and submit to them, since they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account, so that they can do this with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. Much to say there, but for our point, let's not get distracted by the obey them part, but take note, they have an authority that has an impact on your peaceful righteousness, the production of righteousness. They have a role in there, a disciplining role. Practically, elders, like there, there are times I've given, like this is a, this maybe a, I'll just give this example. There are times where I know that uh, answering a question in a particular way would make your afternoon a little more easy. But I might answer it a little bit of a different way so that it puts a pressure on your soul that you have to work through. Or I might forego giving you an answer. That's just one slight example. And it's really easy for you in those moments to get frustrated or to get embittered or impatient instead of seeing it as loving discipline. And those are just practical, every week kind of examples. Let alone seeing a church must see discipline when it's kind of at its climax in excommunication, to see that as an act of love as well that is often led by the elders. Parents. Parents, discipline is more than just giving a spanking. 
Parents, you are the loving hand of discipline to your kids from God. You are enacting his discipline. So let me ask you as parents, do you orchestrate events for your kids to be tested? Some of you are way overprotective. You don't want your child to experience anything adverse. And here's what's going to happen for you. Because you've failed to discipline them well, when your kids get older, if they are God's children and he disciplines them well, which he's really good at, they will likely struggle to receive it as God's love. And they will likely run from it. You have the delegated authority of God to enact his loving discipline. What's it look like practically next? It seems painful. Hebrews 12, 11, For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Proverbs 20, verse 30, Blows, uh, blows that wound, cleanse away evil. Strokes make clean the innermost part, parts. That's why and how God gets our attention. But listen, our knee-jerk reaction to pain is to either numb it or run from it. But he uses it to get our attention. Now let's think about what that painfulness might look like so that we don't pigeonhole the painfulness. It could feel like shame. It could feel like guilt. It could feel like an upset stomach or vomiting. It could be depression or anxiety. It could be physical pain. It could be relational pain. Like, look, so don't just think God only works through one particular kind of pain. So don't narrow the experience of pain in a way that the passage doesn't. Also, don't expect a certain expression of pain. Pain gets our attention. Next, it yields fruit of righteousness. It yields the fruit of righteousness. So what's it look like practically? Fruit of righteousness, verse 11. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. All right, so, so zero in here with me here. If the suffering in your life doesn't produce the fruit of righteousness, we'll get real negative here for a moment. If the suffering in your life doesn't produce the peaceful fruit of righteousness, then you are one of two things. One, you're not faithfully stewarding the discipline of the Lord. Or two, you're not a child of God. I'm going to spend more time on number two, though brief I'll be. Here's an example. If you are an embittered person from some real or perceived sin against you, and your pain did not lead to the fruit of peaceful righteousness, what does that mean for you? Look at verse 7. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which 
all have participated, meaning all of you recipients, then you are an illegitimate children and not sons. What is he saying? Is he saying that if the suffering has not produced the peaceful fruit of righteousness, then you are a bastard. You're not a legitimate son. You are claiming the throne of the king, yet you are not a child of the king. You see, it makes this peaceful fruit of righteousness and the discipline of the Lord, it makes the difference in the quality and the usefulness of our lives. It brings about righteousness. It brings about a holiness that we share in. So I, would, I, I want to encourage you humbly. If you're like, man, I, I don't know if I've grown through this. or like Peaceful fruit of righteousness. You sh- should think twice. Am I a child of God? But it produces this difference in, this, in the quality and usefulness of our lives. Show me a low-octane, relatively useless, quote-unquote, Christian, and I'll show you someone who has spent most of their lives running from discipline. And listen, we have members who fit this description. One author said this, The job of a coach is to make men do what they don't want to do in order to be what they've always wanted to be. God is making us what we were meant to be and what we deep down want to be. Another author, if we long to be made holy, if we cry out to have hearts renewed, for sin to be removed, to be like God in our thoughts and desires, then we will not flinch when he enters us into afflictions, since they are the regimen of his training for all who would be holy. My last point, how to move forward. How to move forward. Verse 12 and 13, therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Just a couple brief points here. Therefore, keep your head up straight and be healed. Keep your head up straight. You have no reason to droop, have drooping hands. You have no reason to have weak knees. This is the sovereign, disciplining, loving hand of the Lord, even in the midst of hostility. No need to have weak knees. Have the capacity to continue. Endure. I love it because in a sense, Paul is saying, pull your bootstraps up. Like, grab a hold of them. But it's not because you and I have the strength. It's because God is sovereign. It's because it's motivated out of his love. Because he is producing in you a faith that is worthy to see his son. That's what he's doing. Next, show determination in your struggle and fatigue. 
Look at chastisement then in the divine light and be comforted, be strengthened, be healed. Be strong in the Lord and in the might of his strength, Ephesians 6.10 tells us. Let me end with this. I want to read for you five verses from Deuteronomy chapter 30, and I'll be done. He says, See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them. I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, and holding fast to him. For he is your life, and he is your length of days, that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. Let's pray. Father, we are at your mercy. We're at your mercy, Father, because we have hearts that want to wander to love all sorts of things. We have strength that fails us over and over and over again. We have doubts that we bring into every moment that we walk with you. But you know our frame. You sovereignly control all the circumstances around us. And as we're told in Philippians, you will complete that which you started in us. And so if there be in any of us even the glimmer of true faith, it will grow and grow and grow and grow. It will be purified and purified and purified through your discipline, even in the midst of the suffering caused by the sin of another. And in doing so, you will make us ready to receive Christ as his bride. Father, do this work in us for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.